Welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. This is Dr. Shiloh. Hi, everyone. And I am here with... Dr. Scott. Hey, everybody. So good to see you. Or I hope you're seeing us. <laughs> We're here. You. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's uh, November 4th when this is dropping. So who knows uh, what state the world is in. Everybody stay calm. Stay calm. Take a 10 deep breaths. Turn on that self-care app. <laughs> you might need it today. Exactly. Take a mental health day if you have to. Uh, I know some people uh, have been told to work from home today. So I think that's great. And uh, future Dr. Shiloh and Dr. Scott, I hope things are going well today. This <laughs> is so weird, yes. like thinking about like, it's like, oh my God, it's going to be the end of the world next it week. Does. Yeah, there's a lot of, it, we're sending positive intentions and, and positive vibes for the whole country and the whole world um, to yeah. our future selves two days from now. Yeah, definitely. Well, we have a really interesting episode for you folks today, but there's a couple of housekeeping things that we want to get out of the way. So this Saturday, we will, of course, be doing Get Vocal because it's an episode drop week. However, we are going to be on a different channel because we're doing a little different thing. We are helping out our friends over at Two Girls on a Bench, the podcast. They Every single year, they raise money to help find a cure for epilepsy. So they are going to be doing live streaming all day long and different podcasters and creators are going to be popping in and doing segments. So we are going to be doing that from 345 until 445. So it's just about our normal time that we do get vocal anyway. So hopefully everybody, please go over to Two Girls on a Bench Subscribe to their channel on Get Vocal. Of course, subscribe to their podcast. There are two writers in the Los Angeles area, and they're hilarious. And we've done some little collabs with them before. Um, but all the donation links will be in our show notes if you can't make it. But you can donate with VCoin straight through Get Vocal, which is going to be awesome. And a LA Not So Confidential swag bag is going to be raffled off during the live stream also. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be so much fun for us to figure out what we want to do with our hour over there on their channel. Yeah, we got to get popping and figure it out. Definitely. So I wanted to also take the opportunity to um, give a shout out to our four new patrons. I'm just blown away that people sign up for Patreon for us. We just feel honored. It's it's amazing that people are even um, interested in this. I mean, I, I think it's interesting, but, you know, thank you so much. So shout out to Casey, Mona P., Julia J and William M. We really appreciate your patronage. And um, for you and all of our other patrons, you know, we're talking about um, how we can amp up the experience for you, regardless of whatever your giving level is. So we're coming up with some ideas by looking at what other uh, sites, what other podcasts have given theirs. And we've got some stuff coming down the pipes I think you'll like. Yes. Thank you, everyone. Um, So we are going to talk about something really interesting today that I came across in just some random training that I was doing during COVID, you know, all of these webinars and a topic popped up on the screen and I said, hmm, I need to know more about that. So I threw the idea out at Scott and we just ran with it. So we're going to talk about sexomnia today, as well as some disorders in the same realm that have very forensic applications. I feel like we're getting back to the root sort of 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 what forensic psychologists do, especially in the application of looking at specific disorders and what their 
how they intertwine with certain crimes and yeah, the evaluations and, and th- that are done. This is a great one that you chose to uh, Shiloh because this is confusing. Like you, you once again sent me down this rabbit hole of something that I had only ever heard the term once in passing and kind of let it pass. And I did not realize that there is, I wouldn't say a wealth of information, but there's some really important information and major, major court cases, like major criminal, um, criminal charges. And um, circling back to what you just said, this absolutely gets back to the basics of that nexus between law enforcement or the legal procedures and psychology that makes us forensic psychologists because there's a lot of controversy and there are, you're going to hear some cases that we discussed today where everybody's lawyered up. The people, yep. the, the defendants have expert witnesses, the prosecution has expert witnesses, and they're all coming to some very radical different uh, outlooks on these cases. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it was very interesting to read through some of the literature and the case studies that have been put out there by experts. Um, but why don't you give us a rundown just on sleep disorders in general? Because I think that's kind of interesting to think of those as being in the DSM uh, because yeah. they feel very bi- biological and medical. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It does feel very medical, which there's only really a slender, a slender um, amount of overlap in the DSM of medical versus mental health. And, and there's a reason we want to be really careful about uh, keeping those domains separate and only overlapping when it's absolutely necessary. I, you know, well, and also we got a three-star review <laughs> on iTunes today. Please tell me week. about yourself, Scott. <laughs> yeah. She's like, so I've already been criticized for talking too much about myself, but you know, Hey, I don't really know what you're listening to podcasts for that are hosted in our format if you don't want to hear about us. But just so you know, Scott, this is your podcast as well as mine. So oh. talk about yourself as much as you want. Thank you, Dr. Shiloh. Yeah. I appreciate that. I'm like, you just yanked me out of my shame spiral. I appreciate that. Oh, good. I'm, I'm good enough and I'm smart enough. And by golly, people like me. You're worth it. Right. I'm worth it. So, but you're right. I'm fascinated by the medical stuff. And especially this kind of hits home for me because in the last few years, I was diagnosed with a sleep disorder, um, which is very common sleep apnea. And it's only one of a number of sleep disorders that we're going to be talking about. So we're also going to clarify some terms, the difference between sleep disorder and parasomnia. Once again, there's overlap, but you know, not all parasomnias or sleep disorders and vice versa. What's really interesting is just how really sleep disorders, particularly things like sleep apnea, which can be the basis for many other disorders and major medical problems, is really only coming into common lexicon in the, really the last 20 years. And there's a reason for that because the insurance companies finally have all cleared the way for people to be put on CPAP machines. Um, Sleep apnea is caused by a physical structure in the back of your throat. Uh, What it causes is when you're asleep, you might be snoring, you might not be snoring, but the main thing that's really dangerous, especially in the long term, is you're getting very little oxygen to your brain. So uh, the way it was described to me by a doctor is that for someone who has really severe sleep apnea and has below threshold oxygen intake levels during the night, it's like they're drinking an entire bottle of wine before they're going to sleep. 
So it's literally, I mean, you can imagine. So every single night you're, you're kicking back an entire bottle of wine, which is another issue because when you are really into the alcohol, you're not sleeping, you're just passing out. Right. So you're not you're getting just, those deep stages of sleep that we you're all You're not need. getting the deep stages of sleep. You're not getting all the benefits for all of the oxygen to support the vascular system into your brain to clear out all the bad stuff, which then contributes to many things down the road, including early onset of dementia, right. as well as heart problems, obesity, all sorts of stuff. So I find it fascinating. The sleep apnea thing is really big, especially in the male community. Because there's a lot of shame about like, what does it mean to be on a CPAP machine? You don't feel sexy. You don't feel, you know, how am I going to be intimate with my partner? All that kind of stuff. And sure. it's, it's something that uh, I reached out when I got put on the CPAP machine. I reached out to the expert in the U.S., this really cool doctor on the East Coast that gave me all this information that I wish my GP had given me. But um, anyway, winding it back around to sleep disorders... Uh, they're now recognized in our new Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, DSM-5, which is not really new. I mean, it's been out for, what, four years now? Uh, 2014. Okay. So, yeah. so even more. Yeah, okay, so it's not new. Um, we should have all adjusted by now, but I still speak in, I still speak in DSM-4, unfortunately. Same. So I need to get on top of that. It's hard when you're trained on one and then they switch it up on you five years after you graduate. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And you got to like, everything is like, oh, we don't look at it this way. Then you have to change your view on this and this. But so some terms to remember as we're going through all this is that within this category of of sexomnia and sleep disorders and parasomnias is there is an SRV, which is short for sleep-related violence and SBS, which is sexual behavior in sleep. So, and we're going way beyond nocturnal emissions. Like, you know, when young men who are going through really the throes of puberty, and it's actually quite common to have nocturnal emissions or ejaculate while someone's having an erotic dream. But of course, I mean, when you're a teenage guy, literally a a wooden post can be erotic. So, you know, it's not unusual at all. So sleep disorders or sleep-wake disorders can be, um, as they're sometimes called, are problems with the quality, the timing, and the amount of sleep. And that can result in daytime distress physically, mentally, emotionally, and it can impair impair the overall functioning of an individual who has this problem. These disorders occur often with other medical conditions and or other mental health conditions like depression, anxiety, or cognitive disorders. So there's different kinds of sleep-wake disorders. Insomnia is the most common. So, And of course, insomnia can be caused by a lot of things. It can be caused by chemical, like you've got too much coffee in your system, or by anxiety, you know, which means you've got right. too much adrenaline pumping through your system. So the main thing to remember is that sleep disorders, sleep is just necessary. I mean, it's kind of, it feels weird to think how much we sleep during our lives. You know, you're supposed to sleep really a third of your life away. Mm-hmm. You know, it's absolutely, it's the first thing I assess for when people come in to see us. Yeah. I I ask everybody about their sleep because it is so foundational to wellness overall. So it is very connected to, to, you know, psychological assessment. Yeah. And such a great point that you made in doing assessments, because how many times, especially when we've been working with law enforcement officers and especially with male law enforcement officers, they're the first ones to come in and they, they, sit down at your desk with all their gear on and they've got a freaking 
32 monster. ounce monster or Ugh. rock star or you know three cans of red bull in their gear and you know and i you know look i remember this too i remember being like a, a, an undergrad years ago and you kind of take it on like oh i can get by on three hours of sleep yeah well yeah you can when you're young because your body and your brain are really resilient but literally by the time you're in your mid-20s you better start taking care of yourself better in sleep yeah so Anyway, so there are explicit dangers uh, related to uh, sleep disorders, especially long-term effects on physical and mental health. It's challenging to treat because, like I was saying, sort of especially Western culture, we're a cowboy culture and pick yourself up by your bootstraps and work work three times as hard as anybody else. And sometimes when you have that sort of mindset, self-care is not really first and foremost. And even within people talking about self-care, you know, when I'm assessing people like, okay, tell me how you take care of yourself. And when you're stressed out, sleep is never in the top three, you know, like, oh, I exercise or I hang out with family or I do Mm -hmm. this. They don't talk about sleep. So first of all, we have insomnia, long-term effects of insomnia, or which is an inability to get to sleep or an inability to stay asleep. Um, long-term insomnia can lead to stroke, asthma attacks, seizures, a weakened immune system, sensitivity to pain, inflammation, uh, obesity, diabetes, high blood pressure, and heart disease. Sleep apnea, which we were talking about earlier, which is like this decreased amount of oxygen uh, to your brain while you sleep, contributes to daytime fatigue, uh, mild, moderate to severe mood swings, daytime grogginess, stroke, high blood pressure. So what do you, I may have mentioned this to you in the past. Do you know what they're finding now is contributing or what sleep apnea contributes to in children when it's undiagnosed? No, no. It's misdiagnosed as ADHD in boys. Really? It's also like, we think of this as an old man's disease. Like you think of it as like an old man with a pot belly and it's not, it's not. Um, I think, in fact, there was a, just as a side note, Amy Poehler and Tina Fey and all their girl gang that worked on Saturday Night Live together, Maya Rudolph, they did a Netflix movie called Wine Country that was like a, a yes. woman's, you know, hangout film. And it was cute and funny. I thought one of the coolest things was Amy Poehler, her character wears a CPAP. And she said that she did it because it, wearing, her, having her diagnosis changed her life. She like, you know, she got immediate results and long-term results. So anyway. Which is how it goes. I've had clients that are just miserable emotionally, physically, mentally. And the second they get on that machine, it's, it's, it's such a quick fix like that. Just that I've seen anecdotally. I don't know if that's, but it's, it's like a miracle, you you know? know? Yeah. I mean, I noticed, I certainly noticed it made a difference. Um, It did not address one major thing for me, which was afternoon fatigue, but I also have a long day. So, you know, I made up for it in other ways, but what was crazy is seeing how significantly my blood pressure overall went down. Like, like being on borderline high blood pressure and then just going uh, going to normal after just being on CPAP. So mm-hmm. anyway, that's very cool. So other moving on is narcolepsy. Narcolepsy is really serious and related to brain function. And narcolepsy is basically a lifelong condition that has to be treated uh, with a lot of medications and behavioral changes. And it basically, uh, it's, you know, like standing sleeping sickness. You can basically just become overwhelmed with fatigue and go to sleep. Or it's really more passing out than it is sleeping. Um, 
because they don't get narcoleptics don't get the full benefit of sleep when they go through these episodes. So narcolepsy can lead to an increase in accidents. Um, just regular daily activities can become dangerous. Having excess um, daytime sleepiness, but they're also, as we refer back to one of our other episodes, they have an increase in sleep paralysis, which can be terrifying, mm-hmm. um, hallucinations, nightmares, and a condition called cataplexy. And cataplexy is that twilight stage where you're trying to wake someone up and their sleep is so disordered, either they're so deep into sleep or they've one part of their brain has gone into sort of rest mode so intensely that their muscles can't respond to their mental commands. So that's a serious one. We have restless leg syndrome, and we also have REM, sleep behavior disorder. And REM, sleep behavior disorder, is an important one to remember because you it's really important for us as humans to be able to get to rapid eye movements, deep sleep, on our own and why it's because it's really dangerous to rely on medications because medications will knock you out, but they don't actually get you to that level of sleep and repair that you need. Right. So So there's, there's five stages of sleep, one, two, three, four, and then REM sleep and three and four are really the deepest stages where it's where, where all the restoration is happening. Your body's creating new brain cells, new cells in the body. All of that is what you need. And you go through those cycles several times in a night, which is why, you know, for most adults, you know, like age 19 to 80 years old, you need eight hours of sleep because you have to go one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five you know, three or four times in a night to get it. And um, if you're waking up in a stage that you're not naturally supposed to be waking up in, it can be some of these problems that you talked about. I'm so glad you, I'm glad you put that point in there because this is not a point that I put in, but it's so important to this is that the full cycle takes 90 minutes. Mm -hmm. So if you don't sleep in increments of 90 minutes, you're not one of those cycles is not you're not getting all the benefits from it. Right. I mean it's right. fascinating once you start diving into this stuff, like the idea that they actually have studied, you know, there are people who are experts in this and have studied it. Yeah. yeah. Um even the position you sleep in, like one sleeping on one side, I think sleeping on your right side is less stressful for your heart. And sleeping on your right side also increases the chance that your vascular system and circulatory system will clean out toxins and um, like the bad plaque in your brain. Ooh. Like it act, for some reason, this, this, the body positioning is very important. So when we talk about sleep problems, there's the quality of sleep, the timing of sleep, the amount of sleep. Um, sleep difficulties are related to both emotional and physical problems. Um, and they can exacerbate, you know, aggravate mental health conditions. It goes back to one of the things I teach people, especially working as a, someone with a lot of experience in working with anxiety disorders, is I teach HALT, which is an acronym for hungry, angry, lonely, tired. So if you're having an episode, if you're depressed, if you're anxious, if you're agitated depression, Check with yourself. How, am I hungry? Have I, when was the last time I ate? When was the last time I hydrated? Am I angry about something? Do I need to reach out? Am I lonely? Do I feel isolated? And am I tired? And if there was some way to put tired at the beginning, 
I think that's probably one of the most important ones because it's the one we pay the least amount of attention to. Yeah. So sleepwalking is one of these uh, parasomnias. It affects up to 4% of adults. And, you know, we would like, there's some jokes about it in movies that are made all the time, but it actually can be quite serious because when we say walking, it's this hypnotic state between sleep and wakefulness where certain areas of the brain are firing way more than they should. And the inhibitory and executive functioning parts of the frontal lobe are not firing in the way that they should. So people can get in the car and drive down the street and wake up in the middle of, you know, getting onto the freeway. And as we're going to talk about coming up, they can also engage in other behaviors that become dangerous to the people around them. Um, there are people that are so deep into their they can be not even sleepwalking, but be laying down, but be in that twilight state and trying to wake them up causes them to act out in violence. So 22.8% of sleepwalkers um, have nightly episodes and almost 50% have weekly episodes. And there's also a positive correlation of violent sleep-related behaviors found in 50, 58% of this population of this 22%, including 17% who experienced at least one episode that eventually involved injuries to the sleepwalker or their bed partner that required medical care. So we're talking about not just bruises, but we're talking about nosebleeds, fractures, and at least one participant in the studies that we were reading about sustained multiple fractures and head trauma after jumping out of a third floor window. Jeez. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's a lot of like walking into things. Right. Like in your nose and... Right. Not perceiving, you know, not really having the proprioception of really knowing what your environment is. I mean, I'm, I'm bad enough. I'm fully awake and I'm, you know, jamming my baby toe on the corner... <laughs> And screaming in the middle of the night. Can you imagine what it's like when you're asleep? Were you ever a sleepwalker? No. Um, the closest thing I ever had to what we talk about, because there's going to be some differentiation coming up, especially in, in a couple of the cases we talk about, between did the individual who supposedly allegedly committed these crimes, did they actually fit the parameters of a parasomnia, sexomnia, or were they blackout drunk? Right. So having said that, I had one episode like years ago, like many, many years ago in my 20s, hanging out with friends, partying in Chicago and got blotto. Like, whoa, it was the only time, it was the first and last time I ever drank that much because waking up the next morning and not knowing what mm. happened and then have people tell you, oh yeah, you were really hilarious. Like with that tone of voice, I was like, oh, I don't. I don't yeah. ever want that to happen again. So the blackouts and the brownouts where yeah. you're fun you're functioning motor skills, but you don't you have amnesia about it. Yeah. Oh, and the worst is like it's four days later and you're finally starting to feel human again, and then you start remembering. And they're like, Oh no, I said that and that situation, that's really bad. Now I know why nobody's returning my phone call. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> I'm much more mature now. Right, of course. So that was basically my overview okay. of, of sleep disorders. Great. So we have set the scene. Um, hopefully, <laughs> you know, sleep is the one thing that like everyone can relate to. Whenever I don't know what to talk about in front of a group of people, I'm like sleep because they can all take it home and like do it tonight, like change their habits if if they're learning about this. So I hope it's the same for our audience, actually. Um, that was a great overview. So with 
Sexomnia, which in the literature for a long time, it was also just referred to as sleep sex. Um, like you said before, and we have already talked about it being added to the DSM-5, and the criteria there is actually for non-REM sleep arousal disorder, sleepwalking type. And I'm going to read off the the criteria. I was going to say curriculum. The criteria to you, and then we will talk about this a little bit more deeply. So for sleep arousal disorder, sleepwalking type, you have to meet the criteria of having recurrent episodes of incomplete awakening from sleep, usually occurring during the first third of the sleep cycle, accompanied by episodes of rising from bed and walking about. So it's not just laying there um, and staring at the ceiling. You actually have to have some motor skills attached to it. And it's, it may seem silly to people or, or it may not make sense like why this is being so particularly specific. But from a diagnostic standpoint, as clinicians and evaluators, and especially in a forensic capacity, you're the one standing in front of the judge going, Your Honor, my client did meet this criteria. This is what the DSM, you are representing the DSM. The DSM is supporting you and your efforts in either, you know, acting as part of the prosecution or the defense. So it's really important. Exactly. You're, you're going to go through these one by one and see if the behavior supports this diagnosis. So it is, it does have to be broken down. The second criteria is that during the sleepwalking episodes, a blank staring face relative unresponsiveness to efforts at communication and difficulty in awakening. So we're talking about usually gaining this information from a bed partner or someone else that lives with them to say like, hey, what did their face look like? Were they responding to you? Did you try to wake them up? You know, that's where you're interviewing people uh, aside from the, the sleepwalker, I guess is what we're calling them now. <laughs> this, um, they also have little or no recall of dream imagery if they're dreaming, and they have amnesia for the episode in question. And there was a, a study from 2007 in the Journal of Sleep that I found that showed in 100% of the participants and their incidents of sexomnia that all of them had amnesia of the situation. Um, the, epi- the episodes cause significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other areas of functioning. So this little criteria you will see on almost every disorder in the DSM, because as we've talked about before, we don't want to label someone with a disorder if it's not negatively impacting them. And I hope that makes sense to people. And in it means usually you're going to go, like people that come to our office, they're coming to our office because it's negatively impacting them. They want support and help and treatment, not because things are going great due to their disorder, but usually it's impacting some area of their life negatively. So this is always sort of a caveat on there. It has to be, there's some sort of significant distress that the person's experiencing. Because if someone was sleepwalking, and walking around their house fine and not getting injured, it's not freaking anyone out, and they're not committing crimes, then why would we say that they're disordered? So, exactly. Um, and then the symptoms basically just can't be explained by some other medical disorder or a medical condition or being under the influence of drugs or medication. So that that's a nice little wrap-up to what you would be looking for if you're evaluating someone for this. In addition, if the sleepwalking type 
can be further differ- differentiated, there are two subtypes and it's with sleep related eating. So the sleepwalker is someone who also eats while they're asleep. And because it happens often enough, the second differentiated type is with sleep related sexual behavior. So that's the sexsomnia that we're focusing in on today. The prevalence of sexsomnia with adults is it's hard to say because of the lack of the literature. So overall, prevalence of parasomnia, which is like the sleepwalking behavior, is about 2 to 6% in adults. So we have to say that it's a percentage of that. It's going to be smaller than that. Um, and you said, Scott, earlier that 4% of adults have sleepwalking problems, right? So I'm going to say it's between 2 and 4% then is the range that we're, we're looking at just based on what we have in the literature so, so we're far. looking at, thankfully, we're looking at a very, very small portion of the population that are going to have these kind of the the level of charges and incidents that we're talking about coming up. Yeah, it's incredibly rare. Um, now, people can say they have it and use it as a defense, as we will hear. Interesting, yes. But yes, actually, actual occurrences, very, very rare. Um, so the behaviors when we're talking about sexomnia, any really anything that you can think of that is is sexually related, so that can be masturbation, it can be fondling, it can be full on sexual intercourse, including orgasm, and also sexual interactions with someone else against their will, so resulting in sexual assault or resulting in rape. But collectively, all of those things is what we're talking about when we say sexomnia. The person is asleep is unconscious, which means they don't have the ability to encode and store episodic memory, and they're participating in these behaviors. It generally seems like it's occurring during the non-REM sleep stages. So those, again, are the three and four, like I said, are the deeper stages. REM is sort of when you're coming out of the deep, deep sleep and then is where you dream and also where you awaken out of. So we're talking about really deep sleep when this is occurring. Um, Men tend to engage in fondling and intercourse when they experience sexomnia. So the sexomnia also occurs most often in people who engage in other major motor skill behavior, like eating, like we talked about, or even driving when asleep, like Dr. Scott talked about. So you're seeing you're seeing overlap in behaviors. It's not necessarily that someone's just a person who only engages in sexomnia. They've probably engaged in the other major motor skills during sleep as well. So I I hope this is sort of shaping up to understand that like this is more about the sleep disorder and the types of human behaviors that we engage in while they're unconscious and asleep, like eating or driving is so routine to some people. And Sex is there's there's a biological basis to that, but also it's it's a behavior that people regularly engage in. Hopefully, which is very also interesting to talk about, like some of the medications that are on the market. Um, both Lunesta and Ambien are known for having one is over the counter. No, is Ambien Lunesta over the counter? 
No, I think they're both. No, they're, they're both, both prescription. prescription. But they're actually not sedatives. They're hypnotics. So what they do is they take people not to the REM stage where you actually have a, like there are people who can engage in lucid dreaming that are aware of themselves being asleep and kind of interact and control their dreams, but not when we're in those deep states. So when you're in that hypnotic state that's so deep, that's when there can be driving, the sleep eating, the sleep shopping can happen a lot. That, you know, very common. That's my excuse for sure (laughs) during COVID. Got to remember that one. (laughs) Got to stay off the giant green butterfly coming into your house. Right. Um, It's really interesting. You know, you were talking about sleep apnea earlier, that risk factors that seem to also appear when people suffer from sexomnia is sleep apnea, as well as alcohol abuse and sleep deprivation. So those all sort of cluster together. You're seeing a few of those whenever sexomnia is actually present for the person. And I think actually as they're, as the scientists, as the sleep researchers and experts in this area are trying to drill down into this particular cluster of factors that contribute to sexomnia, they really are looking at those three factors as being the ones that are the big drivers of it. And if those aren't present, then they're going to be looking at something else. Yeah, I I think that that would be a huge part of an evaluation. Um, There's also an interesting overlap with sleep-related epilepsy for a lot of folks that it was showing in the research where people can have an epileptic incident, which includes like hip thrusting and some sexual behavior where there might even be arousal and even orgasm happening, but it's more related to the biology of the epilepsy rather than just sexomnia on its own. That's interesting. Um, That was a whole nother rabbit hole that I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to touch on this, but I'm not diving deep into it. Um, But it was, it, it seems like it's something that you would have to rule out for. And obviously someone would have a history of epilepsy if you're looking into their medical history during um, an assessment. Um, but there have been, it, sexomnia can be treated. It involves medication and it's some form of a bedtime benzodiazepine. And it helps with the sexual behavior um, associated with confusional arousal, which is sort of like you were just talking about that confused, slow thinking upon waking state that people can be in, the medications um, help with that. So, but there there have been documented cases of men engaging in sexomnia, like full-on intercourse during actual sleep studies where the biometrics confirm that they're unconscious and in a deep sleep. So that's what I wanted to know about. Like, what is the science here because it's going to be so hard in a forensic evaluation to determine what you're evaluating, which is essentially the defendant's level of consciousness and their volitional criminal intent. So that's why, and throughout the research, they use the term polysomnograph um, for you know monitoring all of these physical and um, neurological and vascular, I mean, everything going on during a full night's sleep. Um, so basically, that's just a fancy term for a sleep study. Yeah. So if exactly. you, I mean, they don't really do those quite as commonly anymore because they're incredibly expensive because you're sleeping overnight. I mean, I I had one, I was lucky enough to have one where I went to, you know, basically into a doctor's office that had three bedrooms. And the technician, I mean, it took 45 minutes for her to wire me up 
I should, we'll post a picture of me. I'll post a picture of that. I, the selfie that I took. I mean, yeah. you have all sorts of things glued to your body and a blood pressure cuff and everything that's monitoring every bit of movement. And when you sleep, what's going on in your brain, how deeply you're going into those cycles. Well, and that that's interesting to talk about the access to that because of it being so expensive. But if you were being accused of a crime, you didn't remember, I think you would want that evaluated and you would want that study done and an expert to come in. Oh yeah. And talk about it. Yeah. I mean, and really the depth of what they do, the sleep studies they do for sleep apnea now, um, they can, you can do a home sleep study. That's basically a little headset that you wear really tightly on your head. And it has a sort of a, I think a cannula is what they're called. It kind of hooks up to your nostril, but you know, you sleep with that one night, drop it off at the office and they get the data off of it. But that's only for sleep apnea to measure how much oxygen is coming and going while you're oh, sleeping, okay. as opposed to all that other neurological stuff that they use right. while he's on the graph. Right. So sexomnia has garnered attention basically internationally after defendants in sexual assault cases suggest that the sleep disorder is what led to their alleged crime. And although there's all these experts in the community, specifically in the areas of you know, sleep studies and sleep disorders, the legal community is still like, eh, kind of suspect of the legitimacy of this being a diagnosis and a proper defense, as you can imagine, because it's like, I don't know how many times I had a client say, I don't remember, I don't know what happened. You know, it it's just this big blank that now you're having to sort of prove or figure out what their culpability level is at. Yeah, you know, when I came back and did contract for your agency, thank you very much for that money. That was a great job. You're welcome. Job. But I was doing five of them a day. You know, I'd go up one day a week, spend a, like a 10-hour day um, in the clinic. And that was what these offenders said every single time. I don't if if they weren't denying it, they were saying, I don't remember it. Like, oh, yep. I was napping and then I don't know. I don't know how my fingers got in there. I mean, it's just crazy. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, this fits into that, you know, refusing to take responsibility or uh, malingering, which is basically lying or not telling the truth in order to get, you know, some sort of secondary gain for the situation, which is usually to get out of the alleged crime or a shorter sentence or something like that. So in Sexual assault cases, though, sexomnia has been successfully used as a criminal defense. And like I said before, when this this is put forth as a defense, and we're not attorneys, so we're not talking about legal strategy, but an evaluator, a psychological expert, is probably going to be looking for a couple of things. And it's hard because you're talking about at the time of the crime. So how do you measure their level of consciousness at the crime? How do you assess for the criminal intent at the time? And so a a forensic evaluation really is needed to, one, probably start where we started today, looking at sleep disorders, going through a history of what sleep has been like for them, assessing for all of these other things we talked about, sleep deprivation, alcohol abuse. This is going to be a very comprehensive evaluation. Um, There's even 
an entire industry called sleep forensics. So there are specialists who basically take on cases like this, um, and they use sleep medicine, science, and their expertise in some really strange and irrational behavior related to sleep to talk about the likelihood of this person actually having that and related to whatever crime it is they committed. So not only all the evaluations that I just talked about, but I would really emphasize collateral information and interviews with friends and family and partners. I think that's, I would want to sit down with parents and siblings and talk about their sleep behavior from when they were young um, all the way into adulthood with their partners, um, because that's going to lay a foundation for behavioral pattern. Um, But the real key thing throughout the literature that I was finding when Whenever there is some sort of force being used, that's probably not sexomnia. If they're holding the person down, if they're covering their mouth, if there's sort of that that executive functioning is there to sort of uh, execute the crime. Um, Because when you talk to a lot of these partners, for people who really do truly have sexomnia, they'll say like, yeah, my partner, he was having sex with me. He was totally out of it. I did try to wake him up. And when I was able to wake him up, he like came to, um, there's, there's none of this. Um, it's very much like waking someone up who's been sleepwalking. If you guys have ever done that, you know, in all these cases that I read and we're going to, I will cover a handful of them coming up, but it was very interesting quickly in the, the, the couple that sounded legit were exactly what you were describing. And there was also this history where they bring in like ex-girlfriends and ex-wives and they talk about like an example of, you know, the, the perpetrator attempting the sex act and not realizing because they're so out of it that the, the partner is still wearing underwear. So they're actually sort of bumping their erection against the underwear and not realize like, so that fits into what you're saying, like this unconscious violence, as opposed to many of the cases with repeat offenders in certain situations where there's like digital insertion and sorry, folks, if we're getting, I mean, we should have done a trigger warning on this. There's a lot of talk on this, but like furtive and what's ostensibly seems to be planned and almost like grooming behaviors that we've talked about in other episodes to test the limits of the minor. That yeah. becomes very clear in several cases. Yeah, definitely. Um, and when with partner interviews, it's funny because there's some women out there that were like, yeah, my my partner tries to have sex with me or we have sex when he's totally out of it and asleep, which I'm fine with. And he's actually a more effective, better lover when he's unconscious. I mean, there's stories like that. And and so it's it's really interesting. And, and those were like non-forensic situations, but just when they're they're looking at what the lives are like for couples that live with this on a regular basis was really interesting. But I digress. I think, you know, when we talk about evaluations that sleep studies definitely should be a part of this person's evaluation, if they're claiming it as a defense. Um, And forensic, the sleep study centers actually are used so often now that they do have forensic guidelines. So, you know, they will, they know that essentially this is being prepped for court 
and they have a systematic way in which they do them and, um, you know, provide documentation of it. Yeah, which is the way it should be because you have to, it has to be consistent every single time. Of course, of course. Hey, this is Chris from the Criminal Perspective Podcast. If you're enjoying the podcast you're currently listening to on the Crawl Space Media Network, consider checking out Criminal Perspective. On Criminal Perspective, I take 11 years of my experience corresponding with notorious murderers and I bring it directly to you. At times, I'll give you interviews directly with the most heinous murderers imaginable, like Nico Klo, the Vampire of Paris. I read that I read that you found some cookies in his kitchen and you just sat there eating cookies, watching them squirm around and die. Yeah, it wasn't actual cookies. I think I, I think it was bread, just bread. But uh, yeah, yeah, I ate something. I just sat sat down on the corner and watched him die, basically. Other times, I'll bring you survivors of violent crime telling their harrowing tales themselves, like Shasta McLean, who survived being abducted by serial killer Joseph Duncan. After being at that campsite for like two, like a week or two, he had asked me how I wanted to die. He said because uh, I had to choose one or the other. It could either be quick or it could, or, you know, it could be the slow process. So he gave me the option of being strangled to death, where he gave me the option of being shot. So please check out Criminal Perspective on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are heard. Criminal Perspective is a cross-based media podcast. So, yeah, that's Sexomnia in a nutshell. Are we going to jump into some cases? Yeah, we should. Um, did you want to start with the Ontario case? That was the one that you had. Why don't you start and okay. then I'll do mine after that. Okay. So, and I, folks, I really encourage you. I, I would say probably more so than many of our heavy research episodes, the, the, the journal papers that we access that I'm going to put up in our notes and I'll post some of them on social media as well. They're really interesting to read. Very interesting. Um, so I'm going to start with one. There was one major paper that really was just an incredible source of information. And we're going to talk about, I'm going to give you three cases really quick. One was uh, a U.S. Air Force Chief Master Sergeant, um, Steve Brady. So he was charged with two specifications of committing an indecent act on a female under the age of 16 on multiple occasions. So all of those things are important. So it's a minor, it's a female, and it's not just one time, it's multiple occasions, because that's already, for those of you that listen to this, that's pointing to something else. So it was the, the victim is the daughter of Brady's nine, she was nine-year-old uh, daughter of his girlfriend. And she testified that he came into her bedroom wearing nothing on five separate occasions. And on one occasion, he put his hands into her private area and on another care, another occasion, he digitally penetrated her. Witnesses were called. Brady called his mom and his two ex-girlfriends as witnesses. And he was a stable, able to establish through witness testimony that he had an extensive history of sleepwalking going all the way back to childhood. So, And then the two ex-girlfriends testified that he would initiate sex while asleep. And he very adamantly stated that he never knowingly sexually abused his minor daughter. So he had, of course, like we were saying, they lawyered up and he had um, a defense team and 
the what's interesting here in the research paper is they were not able to name who that expert was, which is very rare because usually when you find court proceedings, I wasn't able to find it either, but for not to be able to find it for this particular um, research paper was interesting. Um, the expert stated that, or stated their opinion that Brady was in fact a sleepwalker, that it is possible to engage in a variety of behaviors while sleepwalking, and that it would be very difficult to tell whether Brady was sleepwalking on the night he was found in the victim's bed. So with that, I just want to point out that's a pretty classic statement from an expert witness. Absolutely. So they're saying, okay, yep, I can confirm he's a sleepwalker. And then they say, it's possible to engage in a variety of behaviors while sleepwalking, like it could be this one that they're alleging. And it's really difficult to tell what was happening the night of. So they're not really saying a whole lot if you're catching on to that, but that's probably a good thing because they can't. How would you they be can't. able to definitively and, and it, say that? And that's, I'm so glad you made that point, Shiloh, because that would be something that the defense or the, I mean, the prosecution would tear into that so quickly if a forensic evaluator was to say, oh, if they were to speak in absolutes about something like this, they would not be a worthy professional. Like that's right. that's a gun for hire. Wouldn't you, right. Would you agree? Yeah, completely. I mean, and sometimes I almost feel apologetic when I do some of these consultations on the side because I don't do expert witness testimony for court cases, but I'll do some consultation. And I'll be like, sorry, like this might look like three pages of nothing, like I'm not giving you anything definitive. But there's a lot of information in there that's going to be helpful. Like just read through it a couple of times. Let me know if you need me to to show you what the important parts are. But it does feel like you're saying a whole lot of nothing at first. Right. But you're, but you're, you're absolutely spot on as if, if they read it deeply enough, they'll get a lot of information that may or may not support their their case or their efforts may not support their efforts. But um, once again, we can't definitively say something about that. We're as, as easily as we can in other areas of expert witness in the way that attorneys want us to. And when, you know, I've been on the end of the, of the, the firing of the attorney going, I need you to say this. And I'm pushing back going, I can't say that because here's the situation. It is possible in this and this and this, but it's not, it is not definitive. So yeah, I'm glad you, uh, I'm glad you pointed that out. So the two X's, what, where was I in my notes? Um, okay. So the end result was that Brady was found guilty of two charges of committing an indecent act upon a female under the 16, under 16 years of age. So interestingly enough, he, he did appeal. I mean, and you'll find all of these cases went through appeals one, at least one, if not more. And he was, they dismissed one of the charges, but kept the other one, which I find very interesting. And uh, he was given a disarmable discharge and sentenced to confinement for two years, and they reduced his military status. So that's, that's interesting to me that yeah. like, it, that it wasn't more severe. That's an interesting one. Um, because there's, I'm going to give you another example of military in a second where they just... Yeah, like, what is with them. this? <laughs> there's like two military examples that are yeah. so highly yeah. accessible. Interesting. So the next one we'd give is U.S. Army Staff Sergeant Dwayne Livengood. And he was charged with false official statement, carnal knowledge, committing indecent acts on a female under the age of 16, once again, 
on multiple occasions. So Living Good was charged of, accused of several incidents of molesting his intellectually disabled daughter. Uh, he was accused of engaging her in sexual intercourse, uh, a victim of assault, like he fondled her breasts and her private areas, and he kissed her in a what was described as a sexual manner, usually while in his own bed. And the daughter was 14 years old during the time and the span of these alleged incidents. Um, he declined to testify at trial, uh, and, but he, through his attorney, initially denied ever inappropriately touching, having sexual intercourse with, or kissing his daughter on the lips. So they did get a a, a sleep a forensic evaluation, and one of the these sleep experts, a Dr. Boris Kaim, conducted two polysomnographs, which is basically two overnight sleep studies, fully wired up. So he opined, that's very interesting in the research, is they'll say, they didn't say he asserted, he opined, which means he gave his opinion that there was a diagnosis of insomnia, that he, that living good also experienced what is called confusional arousal. Yeah. So I talked about that earlier being that right. sort of in the state where you're sort of awake, but sort of not. That twilight sort of yes. awareness, right? Okay. He also had peripheral neuropathy, which I could not get more information. I mean, I know what peripheral neuropathy is. That's a neurological like sort of um, condition of, of nerve excitation in your extremities, but I'm not really sure why that was germane to the case. That he, um, living good, engaged in sleep talking, dyskinesia, which is uh, body movements, and crossed dominance and dyslexia. So again, like as much as I want to give credence to this sleep expert, I'm not really sure why he gave these comorbid diagnoses. Now, and I'm, and I'm not saying that I'm the expert because I'm not an MD, so there may be more yeah, information in the actual maybe transcript. Just like an... I'm going to give you everything, even if it's not relevant. So here's, oh, okay. here's sort of everything that I was able to diagnose him with. Okay. So interestingly enough, the judge agreed with me. <laughs> <laughs> the judge is like, what the hell are you saying? Judge, exactly. So the judge is going, the probative, way, the probative value of Dr. Kaim's proffered expert testimony was substantially outweighed by the unfair prejudice as associated with its unreliability. So basically, he's saying that the defense had presented insufficient evidence as to whether these theories, techniques, and sort of the paradigm that Dr. Kaim was using had actually been tested and evaluated over a long term. So the defense presented no evidence about the techniques that he used in his evaluation and whether those techniques were ever subjected to what we call peer review, which is where you get into, is there any evidence in what you're saying to back it up as a, a real right. science? And um, and whether or not the diagnosis of confusional arousal was widely accepted within the scientific community. Yeah. So, so. with again, just one more little tidbit about expert witness testimony. No matter what the expert witness is or their uh, tradecraft or expertise is in, their job is never to say whether or not someone's innocent or guilty. That is the judge or jury's job. It's just to give you expert information on whatever it is that we're talking about that's associated with the crime. So you you should never hear an expert say this person is guilty or innocent of the behavior of the crime. You know, that's actually a really good point, Shiloh. I don't I mean, I'm sure we've talked about it before, but the difference between an expert witness and 
a like a fact character witness. Fact witness, right? So you could have a psychologist up there that is the psychologist that provided treatment to this individual. They're going to be a fact witness about what happened in the procedures of treatment or evaluation, if that's germane to the case. But like you're saying, the expert witness, the person, the, the, both the defense and the prosecution are going to come to the expert witness and say, Dr. Shiloh, in such a case where an individual has perpetrated these types of crimes but has heavy drug use, would blah, 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 blah. And then you would use your expert test, your expert witness to fill that out about whether or not those factors played any role or could play any role in a situation like this. Yes, yeah. Great but they won't say, hey, is is Joe Schmo over here guilty of this? Because that's not what you would do as an expert right. witness. Okay, so back to living good. Um, he was judged by a panel jury of fellow uh, high-ranking military officials, and he was found guilty. Ooh. So he so was like found guilty. Good men style? Right. And the military judge, um, he appealed. He appealed it, and he appealed it based on the assertion that the judge in this case abused the judge's discretion by excluding the expert witness testimony regarding his alleged confusional arousal disorder, which is very interesting because basically he's going, well, I know the judge kicked it out last time, but I still think it's important, so I'm going to come back. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, he was given a dishonorable discharge and sentenced to confinement for five years. So um, they gave him a dishonorable discharge. They lowered his rank in the military, and he spent five years in prison for that. Wow. Interesting. Another one, this is one that has a little bit of a different outcome. All of the evidence and the, the way the case was presented and came out better for this individual. So this was in uh, a case called State, State versus Scott. Adrian Scott was charged with three counts of sexual battery. Uh, by an authority figure and two counts of rape of his stepdaughter. Uh, His stepdaughter reported that he had fondled her groin while the family was all sleeping in close quarters. And on other occasions, she reported behaviors where he had fallen asleep in her room. He reported he had no recollection of this behavior. And the span of these incidents, incidents with this one victim occurred between the ages of 13 and 18. Um, and then they brought in another MD who is a sleep medicine expert as well, J, Dr. J. Brevard Haynes. He conducted an evaluation of Mr. Scott. And Dr. Haynes um, also interviewed Scott's spouse, who reported that, yes, Mr. Scott had fondled her genitals while she was asleep on several occasions without recollection. So like you were talking about was engaging this behavior, but then would wake, be woken up and she would question him about it. And he would say, what are you talking about? Right. So he engaged in the polysomnograph and a mean sleep latency test. And the sleep latency test failed to show any kind of aberrant sexual behaviors during his sleep. So he wasn't touching himself. He wasn't engaging in these jerking behaviors. He wasn't trying. I I mean, they're not indicating that he was sleeping with his partner at the time to view that. But anyway, it didn't, didn't come up as any evidence for that part of the test. But very interesting what he came up with. This is part of his testimony. He stated that Mr. Scott's history of night terrors and sleepwalking, and that he is in zip, he's had these you know significantly throughout his life. He's exhibited similar behavior with his wife, 
and his behavior is in keeping with reported other individuals who have this parasomnia. And there's no history of vaginal fondling during wakefulness. So that was an interesting perspective to take is that the behaviors he was engaging in sexually were completely different from his normal sexual routine. Yeah. Which is interesting going back to what you were saying, right? Right. You know, some people were reporting that, you know, their, their guy's game was a little better when he was out of it than. Well, yeah. Even if you like, it'd be interesting to see, I'm sure they have studies on um, the sleep eaters, like, do they sit down and have a meal of something that they normally prepare? Or is it something totally different? You know, like how much does the behavior during the parasomnia reflect their behavior when they're conscious? Right. And is it, is the literature robust enough to say like, oh, well, he doesn't normally engage in that type of sexual behavior with his partner. So why would he do it when he's asleep? But maybe the evidence supports that they do all kinds of things that they don't normally do. Right. I don't know. I'm suspect of all of these. I think I'm it's so, so hard to say. Like well, if I was a I'm, jury, a juror, yeah. I'd be like, what? <laughs> I'm glad you said that because it doesn't, I mean, I, I want to, I certainly want to check my bias about it, but all of these cases that I was reading just don't, they, it just doesn't feel substantial enough for a defense. Yeah. You know, I mean, there was there in other parts of the literature that were so interesting. They were talking about um, men who would engage the heterosexual men who would have sleep parasomnia, they would have uh, sexomnia episodes with other males and wake up and not remember that at all, mm-hmm. which is fascinating to me. But I look at it as something almost completely different, like yeah. like a complete suppressed part of your personality, and you're actually dissociating in your sleep yeah, in order to true. engage it. But that's certainly not the case that we're talking about here, where these, like you're, you and I are feeling, uh, clearly we're both feeling squeegee about these. Well, and you know what also came up for me is sort of that that sort of old adage that we would talk about in sex offender evaluation is because so many people with sex offenses say that alcohol or drugs were on board, right? When they, they committed those behaviors. And what is it that Anna Salter used to say? Her, her example would be, okay, so, um, you know, I'm on a business trip and I'm maybe afterwards I go down to the bar and I have some drinks with a coworker and we're both married right? And maybe after one too many drinks, we may end up crossing a line that we don't want to cross if we were sober. But if we're attracted to each other, there's some flirtiness going on. She goes, but if there was an eight-year-old that walked into the bar, we wouldn't then turn to the eight-year-old and be like, oh, I want to go home with that. So she's saying like the alcohol is basically a disinhibitor for something that's already underlying for people who are engaging in a lot of these sex offenses. Um, and I see this too. I'm like, well, you know, is this kind of like that, what you were just talking about, or there's something already underlying here that is, is happening with a subconscious or unconscious state of mind. God, I love Anna Salter. I know. I know. Her books are so great. Did she retire or something? It seems like she just kind of disappeared. Gosh, I hope so. She did so much great work and she deserves to, she, I mean, she did some great studies. She did. There's just, 
she got these guys, she got these yeah. offenders to completely open up to her about their grooming techniques. In fact, the last name is spelled S-A-L-T-E-R. If you Google, go on YouTube and do um, a search for Salter interviews, there's some mm-hmm. just amazing things that come up. And anyway, let me get back horrific to this. stuff. But, let me finish but, up, Scott. Yes, yes. So um, once again... The judge does the right thing and determines that the expert testimony was not sufficiently trustworthy and it wasn't reliable to be, it wasn't even reliable to be presented to the jury. So uh, Davidson County, Tennessee, grand jury found Scott guilty on all five counts and it went to the Supreme Court. um, But... They, when he went to the Supreme Court, the judgment was reversed and remanded. So once again, like, I, I don't know what to do with these things. Like, I feel like I want to really, really look at all of it. You know, yeah, closely. I know. Me too. Me too. I think that the, just the fine tuning of the expertise has to be there as well. Um, but I don't know. So I don't have more like, you know, maybe the judge did the right thing. Maybe the judge didn't do the right thing. I, it's something that um, I would just want to look at. I mean, you know, we use the term malingering. It just, but once again, I have to look at my own bias after doing so many evaluations of offenders who use that as an excuse of, I didn't know what I was doing. I was Mm -hmm. asleep. So maybe, you know, I need to check myself in these as well, knowing that they're, they're certainly, we just need to make sure we really, follow the expertise and the, that the expertise continues to develop so that these are adjudicated appropriately. Right. So well, that I, one I, turned out better. Yeah, it did. It did. Um, I have a very recent case. It, I don't have a ton about any evaluation that was done. I just thought it was really interesting. Of course, it's it's so recent. It was pretty high profile in Vancouver, Canada. So in 2015, Carl Richard Antonius took a woman on a blind date and he was, he was 51 years old at the time. He was the president of Boreal Metals Corporation. It's a mineral exploration company. Um, and he, he was subsequently terminated while he was going through his, uh, his trial proceedings. Um, but this woman that he took on a blind date, she had lost her keys to her apartment somewhere along the date and accepted his invitation to go back to his place. And he lived in sort of a luxurious uh, apartment that was also part uh, hotel rooms, but, you know, he had a pretty cool pad up there, I guess. Um, So she says, yes, I'll take your invitation, but basically said, I have no interest in, in having sex. I'm not going back with you to have sex it's because I lost my keys and I don't have anywhere to sleep tonight. Um, So in his testimony, he says that he gave her clothes to sleep in. They actually got into the same bed and they both went to sleep. And the next thing he remembers is that he was standing in front of the refrigerator, basically not knowing how he got there. Um, When he sort of came to, he realized that she was in the bathroom and he could hear that she was upset, whether she was crying or sort of like talking out loud to herself. And basically she said that she wanted to go to a friend's house and he thought she was angry and upset from being locked out of her apartment. Like she had gotten up and was just upset about it. So she gets dressed, 
He walks her out to get a cab and asks her for a kiss, which she declined. And she gets in the cab and she she leaves. Um, her testimony, she says that when they got into bed, she had to swat his hand away from her once. Um, and he did admit to putting his hand on her butt while they were in bed. But she basically said that she swatted his hand away and then went to sleep and awoke with him on top of her having sexual intercourse with her. So his defense was that the act was involuntary and that he suffered from sexomnia. She told the court, you know, her victim impact statement was really impactful. Um, She said that the assault left her broken, anxious, depressed, And she lived with a constant fear that she had contracted something from him. She blamed herself for a really long time, of course, as we know with a lot of rape victims, um, going to his apartment, sleeping in his bed, trusting him. And she says the one thing, you know, I did come to realize I wasn't to blame, but the one thing I did was that I trusted you. And basically he had ruined trust for her from especially males in her life. And it just, it, there was a lot of anguish in her victim impact statement. Um, but she, she in court scolded him for not taking responsibility for the assault, for drawing out the legal process for more than four years. Cause he finally was just adjudicated like a month ago, October 10th, 2020. And this happened in 2015. Um, she also said basically, how dare you forced me to listen to testimony at trial about some sexomnia defense. She said it was all just completely unfair and cruel. Um, And in his sentencing, he was able to make a statement and he said that he understood how angry she was and the serious impact of what happened. And he did name it. He said that it was a horrible sexual assault that she encountered. But isn't that interesting to say she encountered this sexual assault, not that he was a piece of it. There's the language of like buffering and removing himself from it. Yeah, it's using the passive voice. Exactly. And and now I will say this. He might have been, you know, uh, responses to victim statements or, or alleged perpetrator statements you know, if you have a decent attorney, and I'm this rich guy clearly had a great attorney, um, nothing comes out of that mouth without being filtered through five layers of people. Okay, well, you need to say this, but you can only oh, say yeah. this. So now he may very well have felt that that way about it, but you know, sure. don't don't fall for thinking that it was strictly his words. You know, he might have the sentiment if that was what happened, but yeah, yeah, I, I think so. I think there are definitely bullet points that your attorneys construct for you to hit, but we also put our own spin on things when we talk. And so that like passive distancing is interesting. Like the language that came out probably unconsciously. Um, but he said, she trusted me that evening. I violated that trust and I'm very sorry for what I did. So he actually did come back and own it. That is that is a very impactful statement. I mean, that is actually I got to give props for him. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a terrible crime, but for saying that because that really takes ownership as opposed to, you know, I mean, one of the things I would hear over and over again working in corrections, you know, when people would violate their parole, the way they'd frame it is, oh yeah, my my PO violated me. Yep. Like no, let's let's straighten that out. You broke the rules. 
you violated the terms of your parole. You weren't violated upon. Yes. You violated upon your victim. <laughs> you yes. Know? Classic. But it's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. It's, you know, inmate speak. Yeah, definitely. Well, uh, the trial judge rejected his defense anyway, and he was sentenced just on October 10th, 2020 to two years minus a day in jail. Um, but I think I have kind of a hypothetical, I don't know, for you, for our audience. Let's say somebody is diagnosed with this and they know that they have sexomnia from, you know, previous partners. What do you think the responsibility level is? say this situation happens to having somebody that clearly says they don't want to have sex with you sleeping in your bed with you, you know, you just met this person. What, what do you do with that diagnosis? How do you live your life with it? Well, I mean, I have some strong feelings about that. It's sort of, you know, say, you know, how, and there's so many research papers about this, but let's draw a parallel between this and having an STI, right? You know, whether it's like you know how many how many people like a perfect example is herpes. You know, like if you read, there are so many studies that tell that people just because there's certainly there's some shame uh, associated with it, but that's also so well managed and controlled. And so much of the population, like an enormous percentage of the world population, has already been exposed to off all of the forms of herpes like a lot of people just go oh it's no big deal Mm -hmm. you know i mean like and maybe for many people it is not a big deal for some it would be a very big deal like if they had other opportunistic infections that could make it worse but i think you're hitting on something that's really important whereas like you know you're a kicker when you wake up Aren't you going to warn like, hey, you know what? This has been a great date and I'm looking forward to cuddling with you. By the way, if I wake up too quickly, I, I might hit the wall or something. Right. It's just your responsibility. But I don't, I don't, you know. Yeah. I, I mean, alcohol's here, involved or. Yeah, true. I mean, I, I think some, it, the responsibility lies in, you would think just self-preservation. Okay. I don't want to end up with a sex offense on my record tomorrow. I'm going to let her have the bed and I'm going to go out to the couch. And even if there's like a shame and a stigma about it, it just act like you're being a gentleman and giving her the bed, you know? I, know. I mean, like you <laughs> lock were, the door I, behind you. Exactly. <laughs> and as, as you were giving, as you were giving that example, I was like thinking he should, you know, he should have said, okay, I'm going to take the couch. You take my room, by the way, put a door, put a, a chair under the doorknob. Oh God, and, like she would not be running out of that and apartment. If, and if you hear my body thumping against the door in the middle of the night, <laughs> don't freak out. I sleepwalk, so don't get scared. Oh <laughs> my like, God, worst I mean, blind date ever. Worst, I mean, that's, it's, it's, I mean, we're laughing, but the, the, I mean, it's really gallows humor there, but like, you know, there's so many issues that come up about shame. Like, you know, right. how do you explain that to somebody? Does it happen all the time? You know, that's the other thing is like the consistency and chronicity of these um, episodes seems to be really important. And that's where the differentiation happens of like when somebody comes forward and says, now, look, it was in the the case of Mr. Scott, where he had all these witnesses come forward, the two exes, the mom that says, well, you know, we would like to think that people putting their hand on a Bible in the courtroom means that they absolutely are going to tell the truth. That's not necessarily always the truth. It's like, you know, you know, your mom, 
it feels awful that this has happened, but she's going to do whatever she can to keep you out of prison. Right. I, and I'm not making any judgment on his mom. I don't know. Sure. But like, there's just a, a lot of perspectives to this, I think are important. Yeah. Well, and it, there are no studies that examine whether repeated sleep-related sexual incidents are less likely than just a single incident on right. its own. So, you know, again, that's that's a very little information to work with. And I think that creates a huge obstacle for forensic evaluators who have to look at the research and talk about this when they're evaluating someone's defense. Right. And you, you have a great media example um, from a show that we both love, but before you do that, I wanted to, I wanted to circle back around to that great research paper that I was talking, that I took the, the cases from, it actually had eight cases. And of course we couldn't fit all of them in there. And some of them were so crazy. I encourage everybody to read them. Um, but the the takeaway from the study was really great. So basically, the, the way the researchers wrapped it up was is that sexomnia, yes, okay, this is a relatively new frontier of forensic evaluations. And they say we can't emphasize enough the importance of rigorous history taking, gathering all the collateral information through record review, assessment of malingering, and other key elements. So, and you and I both know that just just evaluating for malingering in itself is a whole other domain. Oh God, it takes so long. It the does. Malingering yeah. tests. So it's like this is a lot of work that has to to go into this. You know. Yeah, it is. So one of the th- interesting things about this paper that took you know the most integral information and case examples that they could find, all the subjects were men. But the criminal charges varied from case to case. Now, most cases involved a single victim with multiple offenses, except two cases that involved multiple victims. All victims were minors and female except for one. So right there, that already makes me skeevy about a lot of these, right? Exactly. Yeah, I I read that too. And I was like, eh, why are we not seeing this in cases that involve victims who are adults? So, huh. you know, forensic evaluators don't always conduct sleep studies to evaluate sexomnia claims, which I think they're implying that you, they really should, because right. in the cases described in these where the sleep studies were performed, there was no clear indication that these defendants were experiencing sexomnia during those incidents in question. Yeah, I think that's super important. Now, here's another one that sets off alarms for both of us, I know, in all the cases the, that are in this paper that were used, the victim or the victims knew the defendant. Mm-hmm. So most of the forensic cases involving sexomnia that had been previously reported in all the literature involved defendants that are generally males and single victims that were usually female, minors, and known to the defendant. What does that look like? Right, right, exactly. Right? No, it totally mirrors the other population of yeah. offenders that know what they're doing. So, so stuff. they just want, they want to say that like, look, it's important to keep looking at these sleep studies because they may capture sexomnia, but that evidence doesn't determine whether or not sexomnia occurred during these alleged incidents. So the, and also similarly, the absence of sexomnia on sleep studies does not rule out that sexomnia did occur during those actual episodes. Yeah. So they're saying that the utility the actual utility of these sleep studies and forensic evaluations is limited to observing sleep behaviors in a controlled setting and establishing the presence or absence of sexomnia 
and comorbid sleep disorders. I think, I mean, that's a big mouthful, but I love how responsible they're being. Yeah. And basically they're saying like, don't try this defense unless you really have it. Because when we start running the study that's measuring your biometrics, it, one, it might not show it in those incidents in which we're measuring right. you, um, but you might just get null results, which is not going to help your case. It's not an easy defense to prove, essentially. Not at all. And then the, so. like, you know, the big bold point, you know, the big bullet point from this study is all of these experts agree that evaluations have to assess for malingering, particularly in cases that involve multiple alleged incidents. Yeah, yeah. So I was very excited that I did find, you're usually the one that comes up with like the rando uh, TVs or films that have to do with right. what we're talking about. Of course, of course. <laughs> and I actually found one this time. Um, and everybody knows that Scott and I love Ryan Murphy. And this is one of his first shows that I think I watched was Nip Tuck. So Nip Tuck was on between 2003 and 2010. It was a serial medical drama that aired on FX. and. Basically, it was about a cutting-edge plastic surgery practice in Miami, and then they did move to L.A. in season two, season three, maybe. No, maybe season four. Um, And it was with Dr. McNamara and Dr. Troy. And Dr. McNamara was like the family guy, kind of the wholesome one, but they were buddies since medical school, I think. And then Dr. Troy was like the playboy. Um, And it was just... It was about their sex lives, about family, it was about drama, the lives of their patients, um, just really interesting stuff. But Ryan Murphy said that just about every procedure that they did on the show, and there was always like some semi-graphic like plastic surgery procedure happening in it, which I'm surprised I watched it because <laughs> I don't like to watch like those shows about surgeries. Ugh, grosses me out. Um, but he said everyone was based on, you know, some sort of real cutting edge uh, medical surgery at the time. So, um, but it was, it was a great show. Um, season two and season three even had a, uh, like a true crime piece to it. Cause there was a serial rapist called the Carver and the surgeons would do pro bono surgery to help to repair the damage. Yeah. yeah the victim's faces. I, I thought um, one of the great things about that show in retrospect, I don't, I would love to go back and watch it and see if it holds up at all. Cause I was still, I think, was I still, I think I might've still been in casting. I might've still been in casting. Um, but one of the leads, Julian McMahon, who I believe is Australian was, he was the most lovable and hateable narcissist. Yep. Like, like he's an expert. He and his partners are both at the top of their game. Like they, right know what they're doing. They have a lot of money. They have a lot of power. And it's, it was a, it's a very interesting exploration of a bromance. Yes. Two guys that are really, well, maybe I shouldn't say they have personality disorders. Their, their behaviors and actions are disordered on an emotional level. Okay. I'll take that. Yeah. They have, you know, certainly flavors of these things, but you, but they, they care. I mean, and it's one of the things they, you, they really do care about the people that are coming in and they care about doing good work. And what is, what was the key line? What is it when the person sits down? What do you not oh, like about yourself? Yes. Yes. Or tell me, tell me what you, tell me what you want to change or something like that. Tell me what you don't like about yourself. Oh, uh, which is like, 
Yeah. I mean, it's almost like a therapy question. I kind, think that was it's very open-ended. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it definitely is. So the character you're talking about is Dr. Troy. So in this episode, um, so at some point, Dr. Troy, he was actually diagnosed with male breast cancer. And so in this episode, one night, he's kind of having these severe reactions to his chemotherapy. He's up all night throwing up and he swallows his pride and asks their coworker, who's Dr. Liz Cruz, to stay with him and just make sure he's going to be okay. And Liz is like, the most well-adjusted character in the entire yeah. show. She's uh, amazing. She's the anesthesiologist. She's a lesbian. Um, and she's just she's just a great character. And so she's like, all right, I'll stay with you. And, uh, you know, pat a wet rag on your head and hold your hair while you throw up. So she's taking care of him. Um, and after a very difficult day, she's getting ready to leave. And he asks her, Hey, can you just stay until I fall asleep? You know, he's kind of this like baby at this point. And she's like, all right. And so she gets into bed with him. Um, they fall asleep and then it kind of cuts to her sort of waking up in the middle of the night and she's laying there and it kind of looks like she's contemplating like getting up and leaving uh, and all of a sudden he kind of like turns towards her and puts his arm over her, kind of hugging her, but then basically gets on top of her. Eyes are closed. She's just like wide eyed, but not protesting and has a little sort of a little smirk on her face and is just kind of like, what is going on right now? Um, but he gets on top of her and they have intercourse and they both orgasm, of course, because it's television and it took like 30 seconds. Um, <laughs> she doesn't try to wake him up. She, like I said, doesn't protest. She's a little bit shocked, but otherwise like appears visually to be fine with it. And I know we can talk about like consent and verbal and visual and all of that, but I'm not going to go there because this is fiction. Um, but basically after he finishes, he just kind of rolls off of her. And then a few seconds later, his eyes pop open. So you don't know like really what's happening. Um, so the next day at work, she's like, holy shit, just trying to act normal through the the whole day at work. Um, but of course she can't, she's acting weird. And someone's like, you slept over his house. Did you guys have sex last night? <laughs> and then he says, oh, I was awake the whole time. And, um, and then it's it sort of left up in the air of whether or not it was sexomnia. Was he pretending? Because that's a whole other inappropriate issue to talk about. But she just kind of gets pissed at him and is like, oh, I faked it because I knew you were awake. And they just go back and forth kind of bickering. But yeah, it, it is. It's interesting too. I mean, how that series is 12 years old. Has it been about mm -hmm. 12 years? Yeah. So yeah. that's probably a little bit longer actually, but that's, um, you know, we look at those things through certainly a different lens than we did then. I do remember that episode and I remember that smirk was a really interesting choice either by her as an actress or by the director Mm -hmm. So that you are really delivering a message to the audience that she's aware and right. she, I, I mean, it, it is implying she's allowing it to happen. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Even though, like right. you said, we could go into the whole consent thing, but for the, you know, the, the presentation as part of this, 
you know, fictionalized drama, that's the way it was done. I mean, it'd be interesting all the years later, if you ever talk to that actress to see if she remembered, like, what it, what was your perspective on what was going on? Yeah, exactly. Um, but it, that that's exactly how it was delivered. And sort of like, if no one had ever said anything, she wasn't ever going to say anything. Right. But, um, you know, it kind of unravels quickly. And it, him being like the playboy sort of like macho guy, he's like, yeah, of course. Like, I, I got my mojo back after being down. And, you know, I, I, I gave her what she needed. And, Ew, you know, gross. I know, that's I know. Gross. Totally. And then that's when <laughs> but, she's but like, no, I just faked that orgasm. <laughs> but also completely in line with his character. Because that's, that's who he is. Like, yeah. you know, he's either like saving somebody and who may, maybe he saves people because he has that narcissistic hero thing going on. Yeah. But um, yeah, it was a very good show. Lots of interesting, That's lots good. of interesting cases. Like Margot Martindale played a woman who was morbidly obese and had not left her couch in 10 years or something. And um, the guy who plays, is it Cassius? That really handsome actor on Supernatural was a guest mm. star. And know. he was asking for a penis reduction. Oh God! Because it was too large. I thought that that was a really. He has. I won't tell you what the giveaway line is, but it's a really hilarious line when they ask him why he wants. Because here is these two guys. Like, why would you want to do that? Right, and they did like a whole Scientology theme. Oh, the whole thing. I forgot yes. about the, that arc. That story arc. Yeah, that was yeah, fascinating. It was good. It was good. All right. I think that's all we have on Sexomnia, but I think we covered a lot of what there is. <laughs> we did. But you guys, if you want, I'm going to post links to all of the research. It's fascinating stuff. There's some, there are actually some cases and we put, we pulled a lot from actual uh, news articles that we did not use today, but like information about the defense, please read that. I think this would make an interesting discussion on one of our follow-ups for not this week's Get Focal, but maybe in the right. future would be a good one. Yeah, we'll put that all up on the website, of course. So, yes, as a reminder, please join us on Get Vocal this Saturday. It's November 7th at 345, and we will be on Two Girls in a Bench channel. So that's two with the number two girls on a bench. And look for them. We will also post it in our social media so you can go back and find where we will be on Saturday. So we hope uh, this Wednesday is treating you well and the rest of the week whenever you're listening to this. And we'll see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye-bye. Bye, folks. See you next time. <laughs>